Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is the Biloxi Waited. We first paint the picture of what was going on in the country, discuss segregated pools and beaches, introduce some of the main people involved specifically in Biloxi, what actually happened that day, the aftermath of the violence, and we end the episode with some reflections from some people who were directly involved. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Before we dive into this episode, we recently had an organization reach out to us for a diversity, equity, and inclusion training that Garen, you spoke for, and it went over really well. And we just wanted to throw out at the beginning of this, if that's something that your organization or your HR or your a team or a group of people that are looking for someone to do that, we can provide that. Our email is in the show notes. It's just hello at blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. We'd be happy to be a resource to anyone that can benefit from it. So feel free to reach out to us. Okay, so the Biloxi weighed-in. Garen, before you kind of set up the scene for us, I know that Biloxi is in Mississippi. I know that this has to do with segregated beaches. And that's kind of where my knowledge stops. So let's inform the people. What are we going to be talking about? Set the scene for us. So the first part to talk about is painting the picture of pool and beach segregation all through the Jim Crow era up through the Civil Rights Movement. Pools were segregated, beaches were segregated, and they were actually segregated maybe even more fervently, vehemently than other spaces. Some of the stereotypes that were negative stereotypes about black people were particularly at play in pool and swimming situations because black men were stereotyped as being over-sexualized and white women, you know, there's a whole dynamic we've talked about about this need to protect white women and this dehumanization of black men. So white men were particularly insecure of pool and swim settings and wanted to keep those spaces segregated. And so they fought for segregation in those spaces even after segregation started to fall in other contexts. All over the country, there were weigh-ins, not just in Biloxi. They also happened in southern cities like Miami and St. Augustine, as well as in northern towns like Madison, Connecticut. Part of the justification that white people used also to keep the spaces segregated was the fear of violent riots if pool spaces were desegregated. But the fear was not that black people would be violent or riot, but the fear rather was that white people would be violent and riot. And so white politicians argued that we have to keep pool spaces segregated in order to avoid the white reaction that's going to result. And so let me read some quotes that demonstrate how this typically looked. In Charlotte, North Carolina, the chairman of the Charlotte Park and Recreation Commission in 1960 admitted that, quote, All people have a right under law to use all public facilities, including swimming pools. But of all the public facilities, swimming pools put the tolerance of white people to the test. So he concluded, quote, 
public order is more important than the rights of Negroes to use public facilities. So black swimmers were not admitted to the pools if the managers felt that disorder will result. And so it was like a feedback loop then because white people knew that their own disorder in response to desegregation actually maintained and was used to maintain that segregation. So then white youths would typically respond to any type of desegregation with disorder and with chaos. So for example, in St. Louis in 19... 49, about 30 black children showed up after some of the pools started to be desegregated. But then white Sooners began to threaten them and the taunts became full-blown violence. And thousands of white rioters flooded the pool area, beating and injuring the black youths. Two people were stabbed and at least 10 people injured during the melee and the incident made front page news. So St. Louis promptly resegregated the pool and only integrated it later on when the federal government federal judge forced them to do so. Other examples were that whites threw nails at the bottom of pools in Cincinnati. They poured bleach and acid in pools with black bathers in St. Augustine in Florida. And they beat up black pool bathers in Philadelphia. In the late 1940s, there were major swimming pool riots in St. Louis, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and Los Angeles. After the 1964 Civil Rights Act, some municipalities filled their pools in with concrete rather than desegregate them. They would just rather get rid of the pools. Public pools also oftentimes created private memberships or membership clubs that began to charge fees that could act as a barrier to keep black people out. And then by the time of the Civil Rights Act, municipal pools generally were in decline because of white flight. A lot of Pools in those days were in inner city areas and as white people moved out towards the suburbs to escape from desegregation and desegregated schools in the inner cities, a lot of those pools no longer had the tax base to sustain them, so they fell into disrepair and many of them just closed down. And then the white people, as they moved out to the suburbs, they purchased and started private pool clubs that excluded black people either explicitly against the law, but they still did it, or excluded black people by making race-neutral rules that still excluded black people. So for instance, just saying you had to live within a certain number of miles of the pool to be a member there, knowing that it's completely segregated within that number of miles. And so pools remain largely segregated. And the sad result is because black people throughout this whole era were so denied access to swimming pools and swimming facilities, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention has reported that even to more modern times, from 1999 to 2010, black children drowned in swimming pools at a rate that was 10 times higher than white children because they were denied access to the whole culture of swimming. Hmm. So that is the background context then for the Biloxi weigh-in. You can see the vehement desire on the part of white people to keep pools and swimming spaces segregated and that also was at play in the beaches, all the beaches all around America. There were strips of beaches that were sometimes segregated for just white people and sometimes for just black people. There were places where black people had access to beaches. But in Mississippi, the beaches were all entirely maintained as being white only. It makes me wonder, because there is a stereotype about black people in swimming and black people not knowing how to swim or wanting to swim. And I, I venture to believe that some of the stereotype really comes from black people being afraid to swim because of this history. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if your grandparents grew up not being allowed to swim, right? then they didn't learn how to swim, so they didn't teach your parents. And then right. your parents not growing up swimming, they didn't teach you. So it's like a generational effect that still, I mean, the CDC study was up to 2010, so that was recent. And I would guess that those numbers still hold, maybe slightly less so, but still yeah. hold. But it's just passed down because it's like rooted in this past injustice. It's not that black people are less capable of swimming in any respect. Absolutely. When black people are actually swimmers, you can see that they succeed in swimming at just the same rate. But it's just there's not the early childhood exposure to swimming as much because of past racism. Or even the trauma of parents teaching their children to swim because of maybe something that occurred or the history. I could imagine that if a parent who grew up during that time of segregation, didn't go to pools because they didn't have access to pools during that time. Maybe they did know how to swim. Like my dad, he swam at the lake in the country where he lived. But them basically having that trauma, not taking their kids to to public pools even after segregation is over just because of the traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because even after the official desegregation ended, there's still ripple effects that continue. There's still legally desegregated pools that were just completely white spaces where black people would get looks if they swam there. Absolutely. And, I mean, that continued long after the legal desegregation. Yeah. And then even in those spaces where black people could swim, in those former pools, those which weren't filled in with concrete or, you know, just removed, a lot of those spaces just became dilapidated and fell into disrepair and weren't maintained. And so there wasn't a lot of access to spaces where they could learn to swim. Yeah. So getting into the story of the Bloxy Wade-In, it started in 1959 with Dr. Gilbert Mason, a black physician. He was the only black physician in Biloxi. And then there was actually another black physician, Dr. Dunn, who was the only black physician in the county area. And so the two of them worked together and kind of led the movement to try to desegregate the beaches in Mississippi. In May 1959, Dr. Mason went swimming at the beach with friends and some of their children in defiance of Mississippi's practice of segregation, and that was called the first wade-in. A city policeman ordered them to leave, telling them that, quote, Negroes don't come to the sand beach. Mason and his friend, Mr. Saucier, went to the police station to discover what law they had broken, And they were told that the police could not show them the law until the next day, but that, quote, only the public could use the beach, end quote. Which, I mean, just they were excluded conceptually from being part of the public. The police were using the justification that you can't swim because only the public can swim. It just shows the wider contextual culture issues that were so entrenched in their mindset that they didn't include the black people in that category. So when they returned to the station the following day to follow up and find out what laws they had broken, the Biloxi mayor, Laz Quave, said, quote, if you go back down there, we're going to arrest you. That's all there is to it. I think they, they didn't have like a technical law that they had violated that they could point to, a statute on the books. They just said, this is just the way it is. You're going to be arrested if you go. The next month, Dr. Mason's friend, Dr. Dunn, which was the county doctor, He wrote the County Board of Supervisors asking, quote, 
what laws, if any, prohibit the use of the beach facilities by Negro citizens. The board president's response was that the property owners along the beach owned, quote, both the beach and the water from the shoreline extending out 1,500 feet, end quote, which wasn't actually on the law books. They just kind of made that provision up on the spot. Hmm. So then in 1960, Dr. Mason, still upset by the segregation rules and the lack of real justification for them, decided to press against them again. So he went by himself to the beach in defiance and protest, and he was arrested as a repeat offender. And he was tried the following week in Biloxi Municipal Court. And on the same day, Dr. Dunn also led a wade-in protest with about a dozen people in Gulfport. He was taken to the police station, but he was not charged. So word got out about Dr. Mason being charged, and momentum started to build behind him. The black community started to spread word of what he was doing, and some of them wanted in, particularly the students, the, the young, young adults and students. So Ethel Clay was one of the high school students, and she approached Dr. Mason saying, quote, Dr. Mason, I have quite a few classmates who all want to join you on the beach. They don't want you to go by yourself on the beach, and they all want to go. So Dr. Mason began to organize them and instructed them in nonviolent protest and resistance. Meanwhile, there was a petition that they brought before the board, the county board of supervisors, and so Dr. Mason spoke to Yulon Sr., the president of the City Board of Supervisors, who asked, quote, how much of the beach do you want? Dr. Mason replied, the whole 26 miles of it, every damn inch. Mm-hmm. And Yulon replied, well, can't we fix you up a separate beach or something? He said, no, we want 26 miles of it. So you can see even in the County Board of Supervisors response, they're like wanting to maintain segregation. They're like, if we have to give you beach access, let's at least do it in a segregated way. The Herald, the local newspaper, ran the story of this petition to desegregate the beaches and Dr. Mason began to receive threats. His hospital, New Biloxi Hospital, threatened his job if he continued the protest. And they kind of just also gave him ominous warnings that weren't really, they were just kind of vague, but didn't spell out what exactly, what action they would take. He didn't give up, he wasn't deterred, and the hospital didn't ultimately follow through. They did keep his job in place. So then the next week, with the help of all these students who wanted to join Dr. Mason, they did the largest of the the wait-in protests, and it has been termed the bloody wait-in, hinting at the response that they received. Mason led 125 people that joined his demonstration on Biloxi Beach. Ethel Clay, who the high school student who had first approached him, her parents borrowed a boat and sailed offshore so that if things went badly on the beach, they would have an escape route. And when the violence began, everything happened so fast that Clay could not later remember how she had even gotten home. The demonstrators were attacked by a mob of white people with bricks, sticks, chains, bats, pipes, and other weapons, including Mm. firearms. The older men, the older black men, stayed back to give the students a chance to escape, and the students were actually able to escape and avoid most of the violence. The sheriff stood around with his hand on his hip and told Mason, quote, boy, you are in a heap of trouble. Which, even that, just for context, we... I maybe have mentioned this before, but boy was a common derogatory term that it was how white people during Jim Crow referred to black people, either by their first name, 
by boy or by the N-word were like the common ways to address a black person. Whereas black people had to refer to white people with their last name and kind of title. So even even in that, there's like a racist slant that we maybe don't Absolutely. pick up. In the kind of melee that followed, there were dozens of injuries, 10 men suffered gunshot wounds, and there were two deaths. The two victims were beaten to death on the beach and one so severely that he was almost decapitated. Hmm. Beyond the beach itself, whites continued to attack throughout the city into the night. Shots were fired into New Bethel Baptist Church, a black community church on Main Street, and 10 times as many black people as white people were arrested by the police, which was a common thing back then. All throughout the civil rights movement, when black people would be recipients of violence, they would also be the ones who would be arrested. The protesters had been trained in nonviolent passive resistance and they expected to be arrested, but what they didn't expect was all the violence that they would face and that the police would just stand by without intervening. In fact, the police even in some cases helped to recruit the mob and spread the word of what was happening. The police arrested Mason when he tried to intervene to help two black boys who were being beaten mercilessly. The deputy let those white assailants go, but arrested the two youths who were being beaten, and Mason, who was later convicted of disturbing the peace. One woman who was there, Dolores Sheely, one of the protesters, later recounted, quote, I got all my teeth broken real bad, and I got hit in the head, big cut in the head. Another, Leroy Carney, was there as a boy. He fled along the railroad tracks to escape. He later saw all the injured people lined up in front of Dr. Mason's office, all bloodied up. One kid had eyes that he said were almost green from being kicked over and over in the head. Mm. Despite all that happened and all the stress on himself, Dr. Mason rushed to treat the injured. Carney later mused, quote, The police officers allowed us to be attacked. We were just down there playing ball and trying to swim and enjoy the beach. They let them beat us enough to send a message. So in the aftermath, the civil rights protesters faced further retaliation by the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, which was a state agency that had been formed a few years earlier. That state agency used extensive investigative powers to spy on black citizens and try to figure out who had been involved in the protests and the petition to desegregate the beaches. So they investigated jobs, credit histories, known associates, and other matters and they began to use some of that information to blackmail petitioners. One signer was fired from his job working for the city of Gulfport. Another man and his wife were fired by a local white employer, and they both withdrew from the petition to desegregate the beaches in hopes that they could regain their work. Also, photos were taken by the local news agencies of what had happened, but those photos didn't run. They, they were withheld until the story went national. You can see how the local media just kind of tried to whitewash it and cover it up. And something I kind of want to go back to, with the police doing nothing and almost being, well, I mean, they were being just passive about it and allowing things to happen. Well, and in some ways that you just recounted, they furthered it, the violence. I think that's, like a lot of the things in this story, we can kind of glance by that and just like, oh man, even the police were bad. You know, I don't know what you would think about authority and power in our society, but police have like some of the highest authority in our cities. And so when one of them 
does something like that, it it like makes me so angry. And I don't know what it does in your heart or anything, but I, I almost want people to think like, okay, so let's say that you're doing this and then the police are doing what they did because this is a real life story. Like real humans has happened. What do you do as a black person in town who maybe you weren't even part of the actual wait-in, but now you're part of the violence and the police aren't doing anything about it. I mean, this isn't like a question to maybe answer to someone, but like think about it in your head right now. Like, what do you do? Like, what do you do if you are getting violence at you and the police aren't helping? Mm. I don't know. Or the police are participants or the police are members of the Klan or police are part of white supremacist groups and they're in your community and you know who they are, you know what their history is, you know their record of violence and assault against black bodies. And I just, I mean, I don't even, it's hard for me to answer that question because like many things that we talk about, I can't imagine that happening. I can't imagine a police officer furthering violence towards high school children. Hmm. I can't imagine that in my head. So it's it's another one of those instances that it's hard for me to like sympathize with that. I like I don't even know where to go. I just I almost erase it from my head to like I almost don't even want to think about it. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. And I've said this in like countless episodes before this, but yeah. It's really hard to imagine what that was like even though this was Yeah, and this is about 60 years ago. So the high school children are still alive and in their 80s. Police officers that were younger than 40 could still be alive. If they were 40, then they'd be 100 now. Yeah, it's not ancient history. And also, just to realize, police in those days were in a fairly literal, direct way, kind of like soldiers of white supremacy. Later in the story, you'll see how one of the white lawyers threatened that if you don't do what I say we're going to send the police after you. So here's a white citizen seeing himself as having the ability to send the police against people. Even though he's not saying like the police are going to do what they're going to do because they're the authority and we're both under their same authority. He's like seeing himself as, no, I represent the white homeowners and I'm going to send the police after you if you don't get off the beach. Just like police are weaponized against black people today. Mm -hmm. When white women know that they can call the police and get their desired end to, because black people are criminalized. Mm -hmm. And so they know they can call the police and a black person could potentially be harmed or put in prison. Or They call the police for the most insane stuff. Yeah, Yeah, we don't have to go too far down the police rabbit hole because we did do an episode on... Yeah, and we're going to talk a lot more about it soon because we're going to do an episode on mass incarceration, which will get a lot into just the ways that police even now use their discretion to deliberately discriminate. But the point is that police officers being weaponized and being woeful participants in oppression is a part of this story and a part of many stories of black history in America. And Garen, let's, let's answer this real quick thing. And then let's continue on the story because, yeah, I'm excited for the mass incarceration episode that will be coming in the future. But a lot of white people will say, well, and in, even in an episode that we we were at a uh, Back the Blue rally interviewing people about this same question, you know, the, well, there's there's a bad there's bad apples, there's bad 
police officers, there's bad teachers, there's bad this and that, every single job. So what would you say to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's, in those days, I would say that, that was clearly not the case. So kind of talking about then and now. Back then, it was system-wide. The police knew that they worked for the city boards and the boards of supervisors and the voters who were basically entirely white. Their whole structure was white people. Black people didn't have good access to the ballot box. They weren't able to vote sheriffs out because they were denied voting. It was the white people, entirely white boards that were determining the police funding, and the police were defenders of white supremacy. That was just an accepted fact. They wouldn't, in those days, have even quibbled with that as a characterization. They'd say, like, yeah, absolutely. That's part of what we do is we defend segregation and we keep black people from infringing on the white population. So now in America, there's this idea of colorblindness. And a lot of people think of themselves as being colorblind and we no longer openly admit to discrimination. But as we'll get into in the mass incarceration episode, there is still massive discrimination that happens that somehow black people end up in many cases being 10 times more likely to be brought into the system and criminalized even when they commit crimes at the same rates. So the effect is this massive disproportionate discrimination that happens. So regardless of whether you want to say that that's because of a few people deliberately being racist or because the system is designed to work in a bad way, I think it's it's both. I think there are deliberately racist police officers, but that that's minority of police officers. I think that there are deliberate attempts by white supremacist groups to join police departments and they try to advertise to their own people that they should join police departments. So there's an effort there. But there's also a lot of discrimination that happens that's just kind of under the surface and is a result of the structure that's been put in place. So for instance, the police department gets financial incentives anytime they arrest someone for a drug crime. And that's the federal government will give, uh, I forget, it's over $100 for every drug arrest. And the federal government doesn't give financial subsidies for any other type of arrest. And so there's a financial incentive to arrest people for drugs. But the police know that if they arrest a white person for drugs, they probably have the resources to fight it and it becomes like a much harder, more difficult process. But black communities are just understood to be under-resourced and to be easy targets of these financial incentives that the police get. So this is all something we'll get into more in in the mass incarceration episode. But it's like the system itself is designed in a way that lends itself or perpetuates the, the stereotypes, perpetuates the results that end up being discriminatory. Well, and even when you look at this exploitation of white womanhood, how white women have been used as pawns to uphold this system that defends them and protects them, quote, unquote. White women have been used and exploited because there needs to be buy-in into this process. And when they're seeing their husbands and the men in their family, when we're talking about enslavement, raping and breeding black women, there has to be a buy-in. We're doing this for you. We're doing this to serve and protect you. So when you said because of white male insecurity, boy, yes. Because white men are doing these things to black women, 
that they don't want black men to do the white women. And that's been the driving force of Jim Crow and segregation. Because once black enslaved people were freed from slavery, the biggest fear is they're going to do to us what we've done to them. Mm -hmm. And even during enslavement, just this fear of insurrection, this fear of retaliation, all of these laws were created initially. Even slave patrols, a, a major part of this is to buy into the idea that you're protecting white womanhood. When you are not protecting white womanhood, you're defending your right to domestic terrorism. Mm -hmm. So when you look at it that way, it's like, okay, white womanhood has nothing to do with it. You want to defend your right to continue to exploit black people and to rape black women mm. and to ensure that black men don't do the same. It's really, I don't know, it's just disgusting mm. to think that that's why these systems were created. Yeah. And enforced specifically after enslavement ended throughout Jim Crow. And yeah. these policies, these laws were put in place mm -hmm. out of fear that of, of retaliation. Mm -hmm. When black people just want to be left alone and be able to do what everybody else gets to do. Yeah. Well, and even the way that they were even pushing against it was nonviolent. Right. I just try to imagine yourself in that situation. I would want to be anything but... Because nonviolent. What does sharing a pool, what does it do? What's the threat of being in some water that's got chlorine in it? What, what's the threat? Mm -hmm. Retaliation and fear of black people attaining superiority. And I think there's also tied in with that fear of amalgamation, fear that yep. black men and women would fall in love and get married and have interracial families because Absolutely. there's a desire to maintain racial purity. And so in any, any kind of context that could lead to social mixing and potentially romance was part of what was most feared by... But the fear wasn't for white men with black women. Yeah. The fear was for white women with black men because mm -hmm. they were already doing it to black women, so they weren't that afraid. Mm -hmm. They know that black people were no different from them. They know that because they're raping black women. They're, you know, using their bodies to rape black women. So they know that there's no difference. But all of this fear-mongering, all of this craziness is created because of the fear of a black man being with a white woman. Mm -hmm. Mr. Rogers in 1969, so at the tail end of some of the desegregation of pools, yeah. there's this episode. Uh, pretty incredible, I mean, it'd be worth looking up on YouTube just to, to see this kind of moment in history where he washed the feet of a black police officer who you know, a character on the show with him and just elevated and tried to normalize with his platform. The, I mean, it was a swimming pool. So it was like very a little kind kitty of real pool. symbolism. Yeah. A yeah. little kitty pool. Yeah. Um, and then share the space with him and just like washed his feet. That's a, a neat scene. Mr. Rogers was like the real MVP. I loved him. But let's get back into the story. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this later in the episode here and then stay tuned for a much more detailed quote in fact backed episode on all this later on. So getting back into it, the black community also responded to the Bloody Sunday events by doing boycotts on the white 
people who had participated in the violence. Many of them were actually shop owners. And so the black people began to boycott some of the shops. And some of those shops were shops that were catering to the black community. There was actually one of the store owners was a white man who owned a store that was directly across the street from Dr. Mason's medical practice. And so here there's this white owner whose clientele are black, which you would think that that would mean that he's somehow like cares about black people at some level. But it's actually not the case. He was out there abusing black people who were trying to fight for desegregation. And it just shows the way that even the white shop owners who were trying to profit from the black community weren't doing so out of any love or recognition of the humanity of the black community. I mean, maybe in some cases there were white shop owners that cared about their customers, but this guy didn't. And just because you were selling in the black community didn't mean that you actually cared about them. So there were boycotts. Leroy Carney, who we quoted earlier, remembers boycotting the stores and doing sit-ins at the Woolworths lunch counter. And the black teenagers used the churches to try to get word out about different boycotts that, that were somewhat successful, actually. Also, as in the aftermath, the city of Biloxi's African-American residents formed their chapter of the NAACP that very week. They pulled together their own chapter of the NAACP. And Medgar Evers got involved and quickly gathered 72 sworn affidavits on the beatings that the demonstrators had faced on the beach. And he forwarded those to the U.S. Justice Department, the Civil Rights Division. So then one month later, after receiving the affidavits from Evers, the Justice Department sued the city of Biloxi for denying the African Americans the access to the beach on the grounds that the federal government had paid $3,300,000 towards basically building up the beaches, bringing in sand and preserving the beaches from erosion. And they had done so with the explicit agreement that the beaches would be open to the public. Which again, I mean, there was dispute over the city commissioners knew that at some level, but denied black people access to being considered part of the public. The beachfront owners argued that they had not given up their rights just because sand had been pumped onto the beach. So they asked the court to add every beachfront home to the suit, and the state ruled in favor of the homeowners. So the Justice Department had to appeal. So then a long process started, a long legal process. And just track the years as I say them to just recognize how far this was dragged out by the city, deliberately dragged out, because they kind of knew that the civil rights winds were blowing against them. And so there's just kind of endless stall tactics that they used to keep the beaches segregated as long as possible. So in 1960, the first hearing of the appeal took place with the federal court before the judge was Sidney Mize. And the city filed then what would become the first of more than 200 motions to delay. In 1963, so after three years had passed, the city leaders, or the black leaders, realized that the city is going to endlessly stall this thing. And Judge Mize is just allowing it to happen. Right. So they decided we need to stage another wait-in, another protest and the goal was to get arrested. The hope was that they could get more black people arrested in order to file a new case that rather than going through the federal system would work its way up through the state system in order hopefully to have a different route um, yeah. through like the courts to get to the Supreme Court eventually. Just trying to expedite this thing that was bottlenecked. So before that, 1963 weighed in, 
Medgar Evers wrote a letter to Dr. Mason saying, quote, If we are to receive a beating, let us receive it because we have done something, hmm. not because we have done nothing. But Medgar Evers didn't receive a beating. He was assassinated a week before the planned 1963 weigh-in. Dr. Mason was close to Evers to the point that he was a pallbearer for Evers' funeral. And after the funeral, the grieving people of Biloxi decided to honor Evers by still moving forward with the weigh-in that they had co-conspired on. Mm. And so the demonstrators carried black flags in grief and solidarity with Evers. So when it came to the day of this new weigh-in, the 1963 weigh-in, a man with a bullhorn yelled out that he was a representative of one of the nearby homeowners and that if the demonstrators didn't leave, they would have the police arrest them. Which again, this is what I had alluded to earlier. He literally said, if you don't leave, we will have the police arrest you, considering himself to just be able to direct this uh, police force towards the defense of white supremacy. So more than 2,000 white residents formed a mob nearby, which vandalized and then overturned Dr. Mason's car. And dozens of black people were assaulted, including uh, Wilmore McDaniel, the owner of a local funeral home, whose wife shielded his body as he was beaten with chains that caused blood to stain the beach sand. Biloxi police in this instance did attempt to keep the mob of white people separate from the protesters, so they at least somewhat more work towards maintaining peace this time. Part of that was because of just increased media pressure. And there were 71 arrests, 68 of whom were black people. Five months later, after this had happened, the, the black people were arrested and they were brought to trial and were about to be convicted, which, just a reminder, that's kind of according to the plan. That was their hope, was to be arrested right. in order to start up this new case. And so at that court hearing, word came down that President Kennedy had been assassinated. So one of the demonstrators refused to sit, saying, quote, none of us are going to sit until we spend a moment in silent prayer for our slain president. So then realizing that there was, this was going to happen, everyone stopped and prayed, including the prosecutor. And then the court, immediately after the prayer, found the defendants guilty of trespassing. Just kind of crazy like that these white people were able to in one moment be praying to God and in the next moment perpetuating this deliberate injustice. Just the twistedness of the mindset that can do that. So more than a year later, so following the years, we're now in 1964, the federal case finally came to trial before Sidney Mize. So the oh, motions to delay finally came to an end. In the four-year interval between the first motion and the trial date, Biloxi schools had desegregated in that time, and partially with the help of Dr. Mason, who helped kind of lead that up also. And in 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed, opening all public accommodations to all citizens. And yet still the state fought the beach desegregation case. Again, just showing that beach and pool desegregation was one of like the hills that they would most die on. So then it continued on into 1965. The trial phase for the federal case ended and Mize delayed his ruling and then later died. So even then, there's, he died before issuing a ruling because he had delayed it. And so there was still no resolution. So another federal judge would have to take the case and review the testimony and provide a ruling. So that would take years more. 
Finally, after all that waiting, in 1967, the federal district judge, Harold Cox, ruled against the plaintiffs. So even after all that waiting, he ruled against them, upholding the segregationist practices. Again, this is after the Civil Rights Act. He upheld the segregationist practice on the beach under the theory that the beach created and maintained by tax money was somehow still privately owned by properties on the other side of US-90. The Justice Department filed immediate appeal. And just, just a quick note on this, the whole theory for why Judge Cox said the black people don't have access to the beaches is because he was saying that the white people, the white homeowners opposite the highway own the beachfront. Which if that's the theory, then just recognize that that means that all of those white people in those homes along the 23 miles of beach were complicit in the beaches remaining all white. Because any one of them could have defected and said, no, my beachfront, then if the, if the whole theory is that I own it, then I'm happy to have it be desegregated. And that would have been kind of like a blow in the case. Yeah. But it was precisely because the white people the white homeowners were unanimous in their desire for segregation that the case continued. So it just shows there's points in history when you can see, I almost sometimes ask myself, was it just 60% of white people and the other 40% were too scared to speak up? Or was it 95%? Like how complicit were white people in those days? And there's moments like this where you can see like, man, there was a really high level of complicity and maybe some of those white people would have been in that position more because they feared retribution from other white people than because they really cared for themselves. But there was just a widespread complicity and acceptance of segregation and enough white desire to maintain it that there were no defectors. A year later, in 1968, so we're Eight years into this thing now, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed the Cox ruling and finally ended the legal battle. In the opinion by the appeals court judge, J.P. Coleman, who was actually a former Mississippi governor, the beach was open to all members of the public, as already should have been the case. I mean, it was already law for four years at that point. And in the 1968 season, the entire 26-mile-long beachfront was open to all races for the first time. A couple notes on this. Mississippi never turned away from their segregationist policy. They never, and this is an important point because it speaks to the way that we see ourselves now as having descended from the past systems of racism, is there was never like a repentance. There was never a heart change that led white people to say like, no, we were wrong in the past and now we want to have integration. Rather, the integration was imposed on them by the court system and against the desire of all the white people in those days. So then to say that that imposed integration somehow led to like this racial harmony that we like to kind of almost pretend has been the case in America ever since the, the civil rights movement is I think naive there was still all that pent-up racism and racial attitudes and stereotypes among the whole white population. It's just that it had to then morph into a different form because it was no longer legally allowed or viable. Which it did. It and, did morph into a different form. Yeah, which we'll get into soon with like the, the drug war and mass incarceration and white flight and some of the, the things that resulted moving forward. 
So I just want to offer, kind of as we start to move towards the close, some reflections of some of the people who were involved in the wait-in as they later looked back on it. Dr. Mason later reflected on the fact that his 15-year-old granddaughter had grown up always going to the beach. And that is why he was willing to be arrested and go through so much. He said, quote, It was for that reason that I was inspired to transmit this city far more beautiful than it was transmitted to me. And I say that to make things better. His, his desire to pass on something better than what he had received. Ethel Clay, that first high school student who had approached him, later recalled, quote, I knew a change had to be made, and it was going to take some blood being shed to make those changes. And somebody had to make a sacrifice. But the way I'm looking at it, I'm hoping we will do this so that things will be better for our children. Even at that age, I realized that. It wasn't going to be easy. And a lot of people even gave their lives for the struggle. And it has been a little better. Well, it has been a lot better, I should say that. But still, as a nation, we're not where we should be. The former governor, William Winter, later commented. He said, quote, You didn't see this white face on the beach with Mason because white people like me and many others were intimidated by the massive forces of racial segregation. I have to admit that I could not stand up to the pressure for being in the public life in Mississippi and come out four square for the elimination of segregation. And for that, I apologize today. And the current mayor of Biloxi, Mayor Fofo Gilch, remarked at a later remembrance, quote, I was very young when this took place, and I still couldn't understand how these kinds of things happened and still can't today. Bottom line, we're better people. Biloxi and our community is very thankful these kinds of changes happened. And I kind of bring up that quote just to show the way that the, the white view has somewhat morphed and not dealt with some of the realities of what happened there. Right. Because basically, the, the way that Mayor Gilch deals with this history is by basically saying it's incomprehensible and we've moved past it. It's no longer like a, a thing that we struggle with or can even comprehend today. But then the danger of that kind of common white response to past racism is that it fails to deal with the legacy of that racism and the ways that these views didn't just disappear, that they morphed into other forms. And if we don't ask what effect has this history had on us, if we just say it's incomprehensible, rather than doing the work to comprehend it, and to see and to comprehend the ways that it has affected the present, then we're not doing the actual work to bring about justice. And past justice is in some ways incomprehensible, but we still need to not use that as an excuse to try to dig in and see the ways that it's continued. I lament that my elders and ancestors had to give their life and make that sacrifice as she was talking about for us to swim in a pool. We look at this as heroic and all of that, but I lament that they had to become sacrificial lambs for us to do everyday things that we were brutalized for. So I I just needed to say that, like I literally had tears in my eyes as you were reading some of the quotes, that lives have been lost and blood has been shed for things that every human should have access to. And and even just to think like if something if things that were so basic came yeah. at such a high cost, then how can we think that there weren't other 
injustices that continue to stand through that time. Absolutely. And there are, and we'll continue to dig into those, but there's so many ways in which the civil rights movement addressed some of the legal segregation, the legal discrimination, but not the de facto or cultural or just practiced segregation that, that continues to so shape the lives of black people today. Yeah. And the song Wade in the Water, the fact that they were called, they called their protests Wade-ins, the song Wade in the Water is an old Negro spiritual that was actually used by people like Harriet Tubman. Wade in the Water was a song that was, that used coded language, much like Negro spirituals did at the time, as a means to escape, as a means of giving enslaved people who were trying to escape a route. And the song is one of my favorites. I performed it. There's many arrangements of it. The Fisk Jubilee Singers from Fisk University were the first, I think, to record it back in the early 1900s. But the the lyrics, I think, are so befitting to end the episode on because the words rang true during slavery during the wade-ins and even today. Wade in the water, wade in the water, children, wade in the water. Gods are gonna trouble the water. See that host all dressed in white. God's gonna trouble the water. The leader looks like the Israelites. God's gonna trouble the water. See the band all dressed in red. God's gonna trouble the water. Looks like the band that Moses led. God's gonna trouble the water. Looked over yonder, what do you see? The Holy Ghost are coming on me. And then the last verse says, if you don't believe that I've been redeemed, just follow me down to the Jordan stream. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. For $5 a month, you can play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics and also join a new Facebook group that is just for our patrons. You can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we will be discussing the history of Dallas. We'll leave you with this quote from Earl G. Graves Sr. Money makes people listen. When you have it, then you have something others want and need. When you don't, you become invisible.